Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 73, verses 1 through 28. This is the word of God. Let's read together. Hear now the word of God. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you feed us today with bread from heaven? Even as we come as beggars, as children to you, would you not turn us away? Would you give us each exactly what we need most from the storehouses of your word to meet our needs in the moment where you find us? We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan minister Richard Baxter used to say that ministers should preach as a dying man to dying men, as though to never preach again a dying man to dying men. And it's a, it's a, it's a saying that often sticks in my, my heart and in my mind as a pastor. Uh, there are some Sundays I am more aware of that than others. And maybe some of you can relate to having sort of the, the sort of a calling in your own life that where you, you realize the gravity of what you're called to do at times, and then there are other times maybe not as much. Well, this feels like one of those seasons for me where the stakes feel very apparent. 
right? We're in, in a national moment with the coronavirus. Everyone's tired of, of talking about it. Um, and yet the reality is it's, it's, it's upended society, and at the same time, it's not like it's the most lethal virus on the planet. What we have been told is that it's quite contagious and that most people will end up getting it and that of those, a small portion with complications and age factors will possibly die from it. That is very sobering. It is a sobering time to be a pastor and a strange, confusing time, to be honest. Um, add to that the, the unprecedented moment we're in where churches are closing their doors and they're not doing it out of malice and they're not doing it because they're being persecuted. Church are churches are closing their doors out of love for neighbor to prevent community transmission from happening. And then you have the reality that there need to be other ways to love our congregations right now. You combine all of those things together and what you have is a perfect storm of strangeness. When I went to seminary, I was not taught at RTS how to do the moral calculus of when or if to stop having physical services at the church due to spreading sickness. We didn't cover that in any of our classes. I don't think we conceived there would be a scenario where that would be necessary. And I have learned and seen, though, that if there is one thing churches and church members tend to like is, well, several things. We like normalcy. We like stability. We like predictability. We like tradition. And actually, pastors pretend they don't like those things, but, but we like those things, too. You take all of those things together, and they have all been taken from us at the moment. They have all been upended from us. I know we may think of it as a curse, but maybe that sense of loss of control is really a blessing. Maybe it is really a blessing. Maybe God is forcing that reminder upon his church around the world, and he's doing it to us all at the same time. As I was thinking and praying about what to say to you as a church for this first Sunday without a physical meeting in the building, my thought first went to those words of Richard Baxter, as though to never preach again, a dying man to dying men. And I thought about how so many in this national moment are being shown their lack of control right now. Isn't God showing us right now that we don't have the control that we thought we did? All of us, if we really think what this is about, are being reminded, in addition to all of this, that life is short. We are being shown just how frail and fragile our own lives are, our own bodies. And we're being shown and reminded of how fragile and frail our society is. That, that we could be tossed like this by a virus. Something as old as humanity. It turns out the so-called Gilded Age that we were living in was fleeting. It was always an illusion. As Asaph says in verse 20 of our passage, it was a dream. And most Americans were not ready to be shown that that's what it was. And we are not ready still, probably. This is not a passage that's written in a context of sickness. 
It's not even really, you know, you would think that in a moment like this, you would turn to a psalm of lament. That's not what this is. This is a wisdom psalm. This is a wisdom psalm, and it's not a wisdom psalm from, from David. It's from, it's from Asaph. And if you look at and study this, this poem, it seems like this is a poem that was written a long time after Asaph had had an opportunity to reflect specifically on the age-old problem of suffering in this life. The reality is, Asaph reflects, that the world often doesn't make much sense to us. It seems like evil people get away with their evil, and innocent people suffer. Good people get sick, and evil people, for some reason, stay well. Why is that? Why does it work out that way? He reckons with that. And, and because of this, because of this problem, Asaph puts pen to paper and he reflects upon the same problems that we see the book of Job wrestling with and the book of Habakkuk wrestling with. Why do innocent people get sick? Why, why do innocent people lose so much? Why do the markets crash and good people lose their savings or their retirement while irresponsible investors seem to get bailouts? Why does that happen? And when we, when we bring all of these questions before God, or when we bring any of these questions up in our own minds, we, we can come up with answers in the short term. We can come up with the immediate answer to the question, um, you know, the innocent person gets sick because they came in contact with a virus, right? It's just, the virus doesn't care whether you're good or bad. It just gets sick either way. We know that sickness is in this world because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve. We can answer it even more short term. Um, we can explain market crashes in some ways, right? There are whole books written on the subject, at least people trying to explain them, right? The market crashes because investors lose confidence. But you probably don't have the real answer to those questions. The God level, the big God answers to our questions. And that is what Job was wrestling with, and, and Asaph is wrestling with that side of things too. In the big picture, why, God? Why? And this psalm was written by Asaph after he had worked through these problems, but this morning, as you're sitting together as a family, as you're looking at this text, as you're looking at your Bibles and following along, let me just encourage you with Asaph's conclusion. And his conclusion is, God is good to those who are pure in heart. That is God's conclusion. That's Asaph's conclusion about God. And he states that right up front at the very beginning, so you know where he's going. All of this psalm is about the goodness of God, even though we see all of this. But this psalm is about the question, how did he... How did he get to that point where he could say God is good in spite of all the things that he knows and sees around himself? How did he get from suffering and loss to the conclusion that God is good? How did he do that? How does he do that? How does he, how does he see that? Here's why I ask. At just this moment, you may be feeling the exact same way. You're a high school senior and you're wondering, am I going to get to have a graduation? You're, 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 you're a working mom in a two-income two household. 
you need your income, and now you have kids at home. How are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to make that work? You were already struggling with these things. Now you're struggling even more. Maybe you are in this moment and you were already lonely to begin with. And now your church isn't even meeting it at the moment. And you may not like to admit it, but maybe you're thinking to yourself along with Asaph, yeah, why did these things happen this way? Asaph doesn't answer the ins and outs of every particular in our lives. But here's the question. If he sees these sort of problems, how does he get to the conclusion that God is good? He sees the goodness of God through three particular things. He, he sees God's goodness in the sanctuary of God. He sees God's goodness in the failure of the flesh. And he sees the goodness of God in the presence of his person presence of his person. So the sanctuary of God, the failure of the flesh, and the presence of his person. So in light of, of these sorts of troubles all around us, what is a person to do? How should we live in such times? Where should we turn? Where do we get the perspective that we need? Where did Asaph find that perspective? Where should we put our hope when it seems like the world is not a very reliable place for that, and it's not. Well, God wants to show us, and he uses Asaph and his experience and his struggle to get us those needed answers and that needed perspective. See, first, Asaph sees God's goodness in the sanctuary of God. Um, in the first 14 verses, Asaph lays out his complaint. He lays out his concern. His concern is there is injustice in this world. There is suffering and sickness in the lives of the good people. And it seems like the bad people have it so good. And they seem so carefree. And in verse 11, Asaph bounces one thought that rattles around in his mind all this time. And it's this temptation that maybe you have as well to think this way. And it's not a, a thought that he's proud of. The thought is this. Maybe God doesn't know. Maybe God doesn't care. It's like a confession. He's confessing to us here that he thought this way, he's not, a, he's not proud of it, he's ashamed of it. And then he said that this was not a good time for him. If he had started telling other people his thoughts and his hot takes on the world at the moment, he says, he says I would have betrayed the generation of your children, Lord. He was in a dark place, and those thoughts that... Uh, that, that, he, that, he doesn't, that God doesn't see or know what is happening. Those were wrong thoughts. And he confesses it to God. And then he says this. How does he get out of that mess? That, that negative, nasty, unbiblical way of thinking. What, what does he do? He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So Asaph is saying that he lacked the perspective to think about these problems. 
He molded these questions over, but was definitely getting these things wrong until he went into the sanctuary of God. And, and, and think about what that was. At, Asaph, at the time that Asaph is writing this, he's either talking about the tabernacle, if he's writing before the time of David, or he's talking about the temple, or I should say Solomon, or he's talking about the temple if he's writing after the time of Solomon, when, when he's speaking about the sanctuary. So he's either talking about the tabernacle or the temple. Think of the significance of the sanctuary. Right? Israel knew and understood that the sanctuary of God was, was represented God's presence with his people. Right, This is why before the temple was built, they had the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was in the camp of Israel. And wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them. It's why in the midst of Jerusalem, the temple was built. Right, Because God is present with his people. One of the Psalms that says this so well is... Psalm 46, verses 5 and 7, it says, God is in the midst of her, right? He's talking about Israel. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why is the sanctuary there? Because God is with Israel in her midst. The sanctuary represented the presence of God for Israel. And here's what Asaph is saying. Set him back on the right path. He says, the experience of the presence of God recalibrated his perspective. So being in the presence of God showed him that present realities, these things that we think are so important, they are not ultimate realities. Present realities are not ultimate realities. Many of the things that we think matter so much are really foolishness and stupidity compared to knowing our God. And being in his presence reminded him of that. So once he gains the perspective he regrets that he ever thought wrong of God when he says in verse 22, he says, I was wrong. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow. He, he's really humbling himself here. Yeah, I can't believe I thought that my God didn't care. Again, what does he do? He, he gains perspective by going into God's presence. And, and in this case, that actually meant the physical sanctuary. He actually goes to a physical place, a physical location where God meets with his people. And, and, and this, is, this is the problem here. And this is something that I think you can relate to. Maybe this morning you really yearn to be in the sanctuary of God. You may even be in, in, in mourning. You may be sorrowful today because you're not in God's house. You're not in God's church with his people physically, presently, sharing the same space with other believers in Jesus. And, and instinctively, you know there is something wrong about being absent from the church. That's right. You're, you're thinking right when you feel that way. And I don't want to stop you from feeling that way. It is profoundly important for us to physically be together. Right? The, the recorded sermon format is not the way God designed his church 
to be. But please remember something. We call this room a sanctuary. That's the word that we use for it. But this is not the true sanctuary of God. This is just a building. This is a space that has enough pews, enough seats for all of you, and it has room for your friends to invite and family to come. There, there's room for, uh, for all of us to gather together. Um, we have instruments in the room. We have a piano. We have an organ. We have a keyboard. We have this pulpit here that is put in this place, and it's, it rises up. It's the center of the room, and it's put here specifically because this place where we worship is important. But this is not really, truly the sanctuary of God. We call it the sanctuary, but that's not really what it is. The sanctuary of God is the presence of God. And here's what I want you to know this morning, especially if you're in despair because you're away from the body of Christ. I want you to know this. If you are in Christ, you have the sanctuary of God with you everywhere you go because you have Jesus. Jesus Christ is the presence of God in, in its most intimate and immediate form. There, there, there is no building that can improve upon that. That building that Asaph loved, if he was talking about the temple, look, that temple was destroyed by Babylon in the 5th century. Then a hundred years later, Israel rebuilt it, and then it was torn down again in 70 AD. Not one brick laying upon another. You see, it turns out even the temple wasn't the true sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God is always readily at hand wherever you are. Many Christians around the world this morning are experiencing the reality that a building is not our spiritual fortress. And living our lives in Christ, in the sanctuary of God, in its truest form, gives us perspective that others lack. Right? It reminds us that these things, sickness, illness, threat of trouble, loneliness, financial hardship, they matter, but they are also fleeting in the face of the eternal God of the universe. Do you have his presence to remind you of that today? You do if you're in Christ and if you listen to his word. You may yearn to be in a church sanctuary today. But the Bible is also clear. You have all the sanctuary that your soul needs already in Jesus Christ. Second this morning, Asaph continues to be struck by the temporary nature of all of this as he, he contemplates the failure of the flesh. He says, my, my flesh and my heart may fail. This is the second point, the failure of the flesh. He says, my heart my flesh and my heart may fail. I think as people, there are certain things we tell ourselves we are not allowed to think about. We're not allowed to contemplate. We're not allowed to acknowledge. You know, what if? No, you're not allowed to think about what if. You know, what if it happened? What if the thing that you feared the most actually happened? And and in this psalm, Asaph reckons with that thought, doesn't he? he? He toys with the thought that most modern people are too terrified to say out loud, what if I suffer? 
What if I die? What if? What if it happened? What if this thing that lies mysterious before so many of us actually finally happened and came to be? What if? And actually, you could break down what he says into two, two possibilities. On the one hand, he says, my flesh may fail. He says, my flesh may fail. Uh, in other words, my body might have things go wrong with it, right? I, I might physically suffer. I might be in pain. I might have bodily weakness. And I know this is a reality for, for many of you. Many people in our, in our church deal with and cope with intense, incredible physical pain all the time. And for some people, this is more terrifying than actually dying, right? The thought of suffering is, is scary. When my father was dying uh, from cancer, I asked him, are you afraid? And he said, I'm, I'm more afraid that it will hurt than I am of actually dying. Right? I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want it to hurt. And for some, the idea of suffering is worse than the idea of dying. A great deal of the book of Job is focused on this issue, isn't it? It's not really a book about Job's death. It's not a book about Job coming to terms with death. He, he does eventually die after, at the, after the story has long been over, but that is not the point of the book of Job. Instead, Job is a book very much about the question of suffering in the here, in the now, in the moment. What I'm going through right now, why am I hurting? Why is God allowing this? Why is this happening? And in fact, repeatedly, Job says in the book, he would rather die than keep suffering. So when we're thinking about what lies ahead for us, oftentimes I think we may have this fear, my flesh may fail. Asaph is reckoning with that fear, right? This could happen to me. My flesh may fail. And he's an answer from God, but before he can appreciate God's answer to his suffering, he has one more possibility to consider. He also realizes, my heart may fail. In other words, I might not just suffer, but I might, I might die. I might die. You know, the, this thump box that keeps beating and, and, and it keeps working and causing blood to circulate to my body so that I can keep going, right? This could stop working and I could die. And Here's what is incontrovertible. Asaph did die. Right? He has been in the ground now for roughly 3,000 years. So this thing that he was talking about here eventually happened. Death eventually took him. But, but it's one thing to abstractly know it. Each of us sort of has to acknowledge, yeah, we realize that, that we're going to die someday. But it's another thing to, to face it head on and let that experience of knowledge in and make it a part of you and let it form how you live. See, Asaph lives with his death before his eyes. Part of maturity means considering mature things. Things like this psalmist considers. Let's be people who do this thing that's difficult for us. Let's face that possibility of our present moment. Let's even think through what's going on right now that so many around us may in fact be fearful of. My, my belief is from talking to you as, as a church, 
My belief is that from every conversation I've had, I do not see a fearful congregation. But there are people in this world who are fearful, and maybe you are. And it could happen, right? The, uh, there's a possibility that the coronavirus spreads all over Mississippi over the next year, and many of our own number could get it. Right? There are a lot of, of, uh, of experts out there saying the number of people they think are going to get it. One number that I heard was that in the next 12 to 18 months before a vaccine can be discovered, 70% of the world's population will probably have gotten the virus. So it's very contagious, it's very easy to get it, and, and it spreads before we show symptoms. That's what's so insidious about it. And, and we, don't, we know that it's not like the flu. A lot of people are just saying, ah, it's just the flu. It's 10 times more lethal than the flu. So minimizing it and trying to calm people down by using that argument is not, not quite fair. Um, if estimates are right that 70% of the world's population is going to end up getting it, and if they're right that the lethality rate is around 1%, then that means that people the world over, millions of people, will die from this virus. 1% of 70% of the world's population is an incredible number. And that's what's facing us at the moment. Now, I don't mention these things to stir up fear. Uh, you, can, you can consider sickness and suffering without fearing these things. And I hope you don't fear these things. And I hope I'm not causing you to fear by, by bringing these things up. But, but I just, I'm, I don't mention these things either because I want to stir uh, fear or play into the same cycle that, that the news media may be, may be falling into as well. I, I mention these things because there is something biblical and sobering about meditating on the truth like Asaph does here today. We will die someday. If it's not this, then it's something else. We shouldn't live with the, the illusion that we're special, right? That somehow we're going to go out like Enoch or, or like Elijah, both of whom just left the world without dying. Asaph says, my heart may fail. Have you faced that truth yet for yourself? Have you, have you meditated upon it? Have you, have you realized for yourself and prepared yourself for the day when your heart will beat its last beat and your lungs will take their last breath? Have you prepared yourself for that? I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is a blessing to know this. It is a blessing to meditate upon this. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes that it's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. Right? Why would he say that? Aren't we supposed to be happy? Aren't we supposed to be cheerful all the time? Well, that's not what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He says, the house of mourning is better because he says, the end of all mankind are there, and the living will lay it to heart. All right, so he's saying it's better to face a real thing than to pretend that it isn't there. Solomon is pushing us toward realizing that for ourselves. My heart will fail. In, in fact, my heart will is guaranteed to fail someday, right? Am I ready to meet the Lord when that happens? I did not say if. The psalmist prays in Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you see this? 
This is biblical. It's biblical for us to think about death. In other words, we should live knowing that our days are already numbered. He has numbered them. He knows how many days you will live in this world. The question is, how will you use those days? Will you use them for your glory? Or will you use them for his glory? Third this morning, Asaph sees the goodness of God by meditating upon the presence of his person. I think if Asaph's psalm had stopped right where we left off, I think... I think we would say there's a good perspective here, but there's also something missing. He's, he's shown us how inadequate we are. He's shown us how finite and, and limited and, and, and fleeting we are. But we do need something more than just to know that we're going to die someday. And, and, and Asaph knows it. That's why he keeps going. Listen to verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. When you read a passage like this, do you ever consider the weighty interruption that is introduced by those two special, amazing words of the psalmist? My heart may fail, but God, but God. Those two words make all the difference. They, they lift this psalm from being a sorrowful lament and meditation upon death into being a psalm of wisdom and praise. What's the substance? The presence of God makes the difference. Look what he says in verse 27. Behold those who are far from you shall perish. In other words, it comes down to this. There are some who are near to God, and there are some who aren't near to God. Nearness to God is an act of grace. It is not an act of merit. Right? Some people live in the sanctuary of God. So that They live in the house of mourning. They, they see their limits. They know that this physical life will end somehow, someday. And some live in the house of mirth. Right, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, dance party that eventually gets shut down. And when all of that happens, the, the temporary euphoria and, and the pleasure shows itself for what it always was. It was just a mist. It was just a dream. There was no substance to it. It could never last. These two words... Turn this whole psalm around in verse 26, don't they? But God. There is a situation, right? It's dark. It's dire. It seems hopeless. We, we might think, but God steps in and changes everything with his presence. But God. He interrupts. What needs interrupted. See, those words and especially their content make all the difference in each of our lives too. Ephesians 2 does this. Paul, Paul reminds Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Because of Christ, 
we have been brought near to God. This is a sobering time to be alive. It's a time to be reminded that life can't be a 24-7 dance party in the house of mirth. That, that life is a reminder that life is deadly serious and that every moment before us matters for eternity. In the end, what makes all the difference? It's those words of Asaph that he's able to say, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Being in God's presence today means putting your trust in Christ alone is safe. That's the only way you'll ever know the real sanctuary of God. The only way. Have you done that? Have you done that for yourself? Not depending on your presence in this room to make you feel religious, but have you really trusted Christ so that you have him wherever you go? Do you know that reality? Being in Christ means that, that I don't keep these things to myself. In the coming days and weeks, maybe even months, I don't know, but people will be more aware of their limits and their mortality that sense that their flesh and heart may fail than ever before. This is an amazing time. This is an amazing time. It's like we're living in the house of mourning right now. And Solomon says, that's a blessing. When we see that sense among our friends and among our neighbors, the right thing to do isn't to stifle that sense, to tell them, oh, cheer up, it's, it's going to be okay, it's going to get better. Instead, lean into that and tell them the truth. The answer to living in a time of failing flesh and heart isn't despair. That is not the answer. It's turning to the presence of God in Christ and knowing that only in Jesus will all our deepest needs truly be met. Let me pray. Our Father, you love us too much to let us go on each day without seeing the incredible weight of our lives and of eternity. Even this message, Lord, is your way of crying out to each and every one of us, you were made for more. You need more. You're telling us this. Lord Almighty, would you grant those listening faith in Christ? New faith for those who don't believe, Lord, and strengthen and renewed faith for those who have, who have belief and have faith in Christ already. Would you become our portion so that we can cry out with the psalmist, Who ha whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing in heaven and earth that I desire beside you. Would you make it so, O oh God? We ask it in Jesus' name.